Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It's been a real delight to spend about two months preparing our hearts and minds for the season of Advent that will begin next Sunday as we place special focus on the birth and the events surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that would mean for the Lord's people then and certainly what it means for us today. This morning our scripture text is Malachi chapter 3 verse 13 through chapter 4 verse 6. This morning we will close out the book of Malachi. Remember beloved these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. Your words have been hard against me says the Lord but you say how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What, what is the profit of our seeking his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoer, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord, they spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I'm really beginning to notice the shortening of days and that it seems... um, to get darker earlier and earlier and earlier. And we are fast approaching the very shortest day of the year in terms of sunlight, which will fall on Monday, Monday of all days, Monday, December 21st. Okay, that's going to be a tough one, so just get ready. On that day, we will receive just under 10 hours of daylight. 
when just a few months ago, on June 20th, we received over 14 hours of daylight. That's quite a difference. 14 hours at the height to under 10 hours at the darkest. Well, compared with the poor folks up in Barrow, Alaska, actually it changed its name in 2016 to some kind of Nordic name that I can't pronounce, so we'll call it Barrow. Compared with the poor folks up in Barrow, Alaska, we have nothing to complain about. Do you know why? Did you read in the past news why Barrow, Alaska made the news? This past Wednesday, at exactly 1.30 p.m., the sun set for good in Barrow, Alaska for the next 66 days. Alaskans refer to this as the polar night. 66 days of darkness before the sun will rise again. Can you imagine what that would be like? You know, we talk about Seattle being difficult and being dark and rainy and all those kinds of things. Well, that has nothing. That holds nothing uh, compared to Barrow, Alaska. Get out the sun lamps and the vitamin D, I would imagine. That's how they get it done. Well, friends, little did Israel know that the sun was about to set on them, not for 66 days, but for over 400 years. After the book of Malachi, there would be no more prophets, no more words of revelation from the Lord for over 400 years until the birth of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Never in the nation's history... Since they became a nation, did they go without revelation for that period of time? 400 years of darkness without a word from God were about to descend on Israel until the day that the Son of Righteousness would dawn with the birth of Jesus. Now, theologians refer to this period of time between the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New, which is Matthew, Theologians refer to this 400 year of darkness period, they refer to it as the intertestamental period, the time between the testaments. It's roughly the same amount of time between the founding of Jamestown as the first American colony in 1607 and today. Think about how long ago that feels, like the founding of Jamestown in 1607. I mean, that seems like eons ago. I mean, obviously, we can't even relate to how far that was in the past. That's the period of darkness that was about to descend on the nation of Israel, and it was going to be incredibly difficult for them for a variety of reasons. So that's the context today as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Advent. The sun is setting on Israel, and they are about to enter into a time of almost unprecedented darkness. And the book of Malachi ends with a rather ominous prophecy. You know, there's something powerful about last words and final words, and there's power to this. I want us to feel it. I want us to sense it. Because Advent means all the more because of the darkness that precedes it. Okay, you can't appreciate the light 
okay, until you've experienced the darkness. I want us to try to experience that just a bit this morning and explain why it would be so dark. Look at chapter 3, verse 13 in your insert. This is how the book closes. These are the last words, as it were, of the Old Testament. Before I say this again, remember, you should know by now, you should be experts in the literary genre of the book of Malachi, right? It's laid out according to what? What's the method? Someone call it out. Technically speaking, what is the literary, what's the method that God uses to communicate these prophecies? Come on, someone. The disputation method. Okay, I hope that was right. I didn't hear it. My hearing's not good these days. Why is it called the disputation method? Because it's, it, it revolves around a series of disputes that the Lord brings to the people. He communicates a dispute. He makes an assertion. The people respond with a question, like, how did we do that? And then the Lord answers and explains what it is or what it was that they did wrong. So we have our final disputation here, our final dispute, our final complaint the Lord raises with the people. Chapter 3, verse 13. Here's the dispute. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. In other words, you have sinned in your, in your speech and in your heart against me. But you say, again, the people are shocked at this accusation, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Verse 14. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. In other words, the people were saying in their hearts and minds, what benefit is it to serve the Lord? What, what am I getting out of this? How is this helpful or beneficial to me to serve the Lord or walk in a state of repentance? How is that helpful to me? Verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. In other words, the people of Israel began to view those who were arrogant and got away with it, the people of Israel started to view them as being really the blessed ones, not the God-fearing ones, but the people who were arrogant and didn't care. Those were the people that seemed to make it in the world. Malachi, or the Lord through Malachi, goes on, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. In my view, this might have been the worst sin that Israel ever committed. It's just my opinion. I mean, all sins are an affront against the character of God. But this sin was really personal. This sin was especially heinous. You know, it's one thing to bring your less than your best in terms of sacrifices, okay, and... Um, and maybe skimp on your giving. That's a serious sin. That's a significant thing, okay? But after all of these years, to come to the conclusion that serving the God of the Bible is a waste of time, to come to the conclusion that those who don't serve God are more blessed than those who do. I mean, that was an offense. That was a sin of the highest order. That's about as personal as it gets. I don't know if you've been a part of the dynamics of what I'm about to describe. 
you know, I, I've certainly experienced it. Um, you know how off-putting it can feel when you're spending time with someone and they end up looking at their watch the entire time, okay? And it's not because they have a new Apple watch, you know, that they're getting texts all the time. And I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the person that looks at their watch the whole time, really because they would rather be somewhere else, doing something else with somebody else. In other words, by looking at their watch, they're saying that being with you is not the best use of their time. Multiply that by a billion. And that's what the people of God were communicating with this final complaint. God just wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth their time. Speaking of time, think about how this whole story, this relationship, this love affair between God and his people, think about how it began. It began, I mean, it's, you know, you can, you can date, like, the origin of Israel. I mean, theologians, pastors, whatever, you can date it at, very, at, point, at various points. You can date it to, like, creation. You can date it to Adam walking with God in the cool of the day. You can, you can date it, like, with God's call of Abraham. But for this morning, I want to I pick up our story a thousand years before this final prophecy. What was going on? A thousand years before this prophecy, a thousand years before this prophecy, the people of God were suffering after many years of silence and slavery before the Lord finally heard the cries of his people. Okay, a thousand years before God's final word in Malachi, Exodus 2 describes the situation. The Israelites groaned in their slavery under Pharaoh, and they cried out, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Do you remember how long the people had suffered in darkness and difficulty in bondage to the Egyptians? Do you remember how long that was, that, that period of darkness before God heard their prayer? How long was that? 400 years. 400 years of silence and darkness and bondage until the Lord spoke to Moses from the burning bush and delivered them and made them into a nation. And from that day, from that day, a thousand years before until this one, God had loved and redeemed and trained and encouraged and disciplined his people. And after all these years, after all these years of faithfulness and care and love and devotion and redemption, after 400 years, Malachi 3, verses 13 through 15, is a summary of the people's conclusion. That was the state of their heart after all that time. Their conclusion, it wasn't worth it. It's a vain thing to serve the God of the Hebrews. It's just not worth my time. Isn't that amazing? 
after all these years. You back it up further, 800 years before that, before, before the, um, I guess 400 years before that, before, before God heard their prayer when he called Abram. After all those years, this, it's come to this. It's a vain thing to serve you. You're not worth my time. I'd rather be doing something else. So I think there's a parallel in my mind. Again, this is not something, I mean, just in my mind, there's a parallel that God heard their prayers and delivered them through the blood of the Passover after 400 years of silence. And sadly, they were going to have to experience that same thing until another Passover lamb would come. The real Passover lamb would come. If that makes sense in your mind, because just, just disclaimer, some people wonder, like, and I don't know this for sure, why 400 years? Why not 200 years? Why not 600 years between the close of the Old Testament and the dawn of the Son of Righteousness in the New? We don't know. But it seems, it seems amazing to me that the people of Israel suffered in bondage and darkness for 400 years before God, through the blood of the Passover, would set them free. And after all of these years of rebellion and ingratitude, an even darker period of 400 years was coming before the true Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb, comes. In other words, it's, it's the same thing. Be, well, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. In other words, they were going to have to be prepared for their need. And buddy, would they be prepared. Look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. In the midst of, of, of an almost full-scale rejection of the Lord, in the midst of that, God always has a people. Even at the worst times in the Old Testament, God had you know, reserved 7,000 people who wouldn't bow the knee to Baal. God always has his people. He always has a remnant. And so in the midst of this broader rebellion, there were still some who responded to Malachi's prophecy. There were some people whose hearts and consciences were pricked by this, who felt convicted by what they had done. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. In other words, they felt conviction over their sin, and they encouraged one another. Okay, they ministered to one another. They enjoyed a kind of community with one another where they loved each other to tell each other what they needed to hear. And the people responded. The text indicates the Lord paid attention and heard them, just like he had heard the groaning of the, of the people under Pharaoh's tyranny. The Lord paid attention. He heard them. And a book of remembrance was written. The Medo-Persians, it is said, had books of remembrance, if you will, where they would chronicle who was doing what and how nations were responding, and they would keep tabs on their people. And so we think this is, in a sense, a response to that. So the Medo-Persians and their kings had books of remembrance where they would keep track of what was going on. Well, God, metaphorically, has his own book of remembrance. He remembers those who trust him and humble themselves before him. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in. Okay, if you have a pen or a pencil, just in your memory, 
underline the day. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. One confusing thing, I'll just say this, it's, 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 it's very hard as the, as, as the preacher or the teacher to communicate this uh, outside of Sunday school. Because these prophecies, they are, they are complicated, they are, they are complex, and they're intricate, and, and Sunday school format allows a back and forth, a Q&A, do you understand what I'm saying, or do you not understand what I'm saying, and things like that. See, it's especially complex at the end of Malachi. Do you remember, do you remember why from a couple weeks ago? One of the hard parts about these Old Testament prophecies, do you remember what I talked about like in terms of prophetic perspective? Okay, that's a, that's a concept we need to be familiar with. Like if you go to an overlook, and when I used to live in North Carolina, you could go to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and you go to an overlook, and you'd see these beautiful mountains in the distance, you know, and it seemed like you would have like one range stacked on, on top of another, on top of another, and they seemed to be like right beside each other, but if you were actually on the top of one mountain range, you would see there's a vast distance before the next one comes. Like, one of the reasons that the birth of Jesus Christ and his initial ministry came as such a shock is because the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke about the day of the Lord, if you remember, they spoke about the day of the Lord as if it was coming all at once. Okay? I can see Nick Gillum. He didn't, I don't know if he heard me. <laughs> he looked, he was furrowing his brow. The Old Testament prophets spoke as if the day of the Lord was coming all at once, when it was not coming all at once. It was coming in phases. Okay, so when I say to you, the day of the Lord now, that the day of the Lord is coming, what do you automatically think of? If we're to read in the New Testament about the future day of the Lord, what does that mean? That's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's referring to Judgment Day with a capital J, okay? We know that that's referring to the second coming. When the Old Testament prophets referred to the day of the Lord, okay, that's what they were thinking of. They were thinking of the future judgment. They did not realize that the future judgment day was going to be divided into two advents. The first advent of Jesus was the day of the Lord. It's the day when the Lord tabernacled himself among his people. Okay? Where he would give his life as a ransom for many. Then, in the same way, there was like an intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Advent. What do we call the period we're living in now? Anybody know? I'll give you, I'll give you a little bonus later if you can remember. It's called the inter-Advent period. The time between the Advents. Okay. And a confusing thing about the end of Malachi is that Malachi, even in the same sentence, refers to both the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus and doesn't make a distinction between the two. And so for the reader, you know what I mean? You're, 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 you're reading it and it's confusing because it seems like 
you know, these are prophecies about the birth of Jesus and then the end comes. Like in the same sentence. They're viewing it as if it's one event. Okay, but then the, in the mystery of God's plan, it unfolds in two phases. So let's look at our text. Again, verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Okay, that's a metaphor for the fact that God will remember those who repent and trust in him. Now look at verse 17. This is the beginning of a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. First coming, second coming, first coming, second coming. With no distinction between the two. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day. So underline the day. Okay, on that day, that's talking about second coming day. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. When was the last time that kind of distinction was made? When was, when was there a time in Israel's history where, where a public, a public distinction was made between God's people and not God's people? It went back to the Exodus, to the plagues. As God poured out his plagues on the Egyptians, Okay, and then later in the plagues, it, it said he made a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. And the plagues he would pour out on the Egyptians, he did not pour out on his people until the final distinction was made between those who had the blood of the Passover on their doors and those who did not. And so Malachi, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is looking ahead into the future of the day of the Lord, the final day. Look at verse 4, I'm chapter 4, verse 1, rather. He continues with this, okay, with the second coming day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, again, here's that terminology, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, neither, it will leave them neither root nor branch. That is a prophecy about the second coming of Messiah. That's a prophecy about Judgment Day. Then in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, you get a mix of both, first coming and second coming. You ought to label them, because it can be confusing. Chapter 4, verse 2, we're going to go to first coming. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Okay, that's first coming. Who's the son of righteousness that's going to rise with healing in his wings? Now that Hebrew term for wing could also be a reference to like the rays of a sun. Okay, 
Who is the son of righteousness that's going to bring healing in his wings or, or in the rays of the sun? Righteousness is going to come forward. Well, we find out at the end of Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, makes a prophecy that I will read. You do not have to turn there. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 He's speaking about his son in the ministry John the Baptist would have, and he speaks about Messiah as well. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. We heard about that in Malachi 3, 1 through 5. John the Baptist was going to prepare the way for Christ, the Son, the Lord Jesus. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now listen to this, Luke 1, chapter 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. That is a clear allusion back to Malachi 4.2. In Malachi 4.2, what does it say? Read the text. The sun of righteousness is coming with healing in its wings. Okay, like just, just another little, little lesson here. When Old Testament writers, um, they can do one of two things when they are referencing the Old Testament. They can either quote it directly or they allude back to it, okay? And just because something's not quoted directly with every single word being the same, that doesn't mean it's not a clear allusion back. Zechariah is making a clear allusion back to Malachi 4.2. Instead of calling it the sun of righteousness, he calls it the rising sun coming to us from heaven. In other words, Jesus, the birth of Jesus... The first advent of Jesus is what Malachi 4.2 is talking about. You think about how amazing that is. Over 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Malachi tells you the son of righteousness is coming. Zechariah calls him the rising sun. That's the first day of the Lord. Go to verse 2. I'm sorry, go to verse 4. So I just want you to see that. Well, before we go to verse 4, go back to verse 3. This is just in terms of helping us with understanding Old Testament prophecies. Chapter 4, verse 2 is a clear reference to the first advent of Jesus, the first coming. Now look at verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked... For they will be under the ashes of the soles of your feet on, there that word again, is again, the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. That's second coming. So you, we should cut, you know, the people that seem so shocked, the people that seem so shocked at why Jesus did not just come in and lay waste to Rome. Can you understand why they, like, they didn't, they didn't, like, when they saw the Son of Man publicly executed by the Romans, 
Can you see why that, they, they were shocked by that? They, they didn't think that this is consistent with prophecies like Malachi 3 and 4? Because they thought the day of the Lord when Messiah comes, it's over for the enemies of God's people. They had no idea that when the sun of righteousness dawned, that it would leave him hanging on a cross in total darkness. They didn't, they didn't understand that because they thought the day of the Lord was one event. See, we have the blessing of hindsight, of understanding the difference and the distinction the, and the importance of that distinction. Okay, now to go to verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. God through Malachi says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Horeb's the same thing as Mount Sinai. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now, friends, if that's not an ominous warning in light of all that we've seen in the history of God's people, I don't know what is. Because that's exactly the thing they have not been able to do for the past a thousand years. How long? We went through the book of Exodus. How long did it take for the people of Israel to violate the laws of God they were given on Mount Horeb? How long did it take? About five minutes. Before they sinned against the Lord before they desired to go back to Egypt, you know, they conveniently forgot how much they were suffering there and how difficult it was. And they longed to be back eating the leeks and eating the meats that they enjoyed in Egypt. It didn't take them five minutes before they violated the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. They had never been able to obey God's law from the heart. Never. I mean, that's what the whole book of Judges is about. The entire book of Judges, there are the cycle of the Judges, where the people would rebel, they would disobey, they would be defeated and taken into bondage, and then what would God provide? He would, he would provide a judge or a deliverer. And this happens seven times, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then they get to the land, and it happens over and over and over and over again. And then Assyria pounds them, and then Babylon pounds them. They're taken into captivity. They come back. They get their city. They get their temple. They get their walls. And then they say, it's a waste of time to serve him. And the last word that God says is, remember the laws I gave you at Horeb. Do you remember what Peter said to some of the Jews in the days of the early church? The Jews, they are called the Judaizers. Do you remember what Peter said to the Judaizers, the Judaizers when the Judaizers were trying to get Gentile Christians? These Judaizers were trying to get Gentile Christians to go back and adopt various parts of the Old Testament ceremonial law. Do you remember what Peter said to them? Peter said to them, Why would you put on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? 
In other words, why in the world are you going back to the time of law-keeping? Okay, why in the world would you imply to them that keeping the law is a prerequisite to being saved? That was a yoke and a burden none of our forefathers could bear. And so Peter was denouncing the Judaizers for laying on these Christians something that no Israelite was able to bear. So why would God, through Malachi, tell them at the end, remember the law of my servant Moses? Want to clarify, want to clarify. Of course we're called to obey the Ten Commandments. Those are an expression of God's moral character. Of course we're called to love God and love neighbor. And we do so out of gratitude, right? We do so to honor the Lord who saved us. We, we do so because we're saved, not to get saved. I mean, that is a critical distinction. So why did God leave them with this final word? Well, one key reason is he wanted the Israelites to feel the weight of the law, the burden of the law, the yoke that's unbearable, that Peter mentioned. That's the final word. That's what God wanted to leave his people with. Remember the law. He wanted them to feel the burden and the weight of it. And what did that produce, those final words? Do you remember your history? That commandment to remember the law of Moses, what institution did that create by the time of Jesus? That created the single most legalistic group of people in the history of the world. What do you think evolved and came into being during the intertestamental period? The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees who oppressed the people of God with the legalism unseen in the history of our world. The Lord wanted his people to feel the weight of the law. He wanted them to know it as an unbearable burden, and he wanted them to live in that darkness and difficulty for 400 years. You cannot appreciate the light if you don't experience the darkness. That's true for salvation for us. And that was true in their situation. I'll end with verses 5 and 6. I want us this morning to feel the darkness and to feel the weight. These people thought or were trying or thinking that if they just obeyed enough of the Old Testament law that they would be saved. And they were reminded that's an impossible reality. This is it. This is how the Old Testament ends. The light is fading. The sun is setting. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, that's John the Baptist, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, John the Baptist, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's a Hebrew idiom for heart softening and heart preparation. That's what John's ministry would be, to prepare the way, prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Christ. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The final word for 400 years. He was leaving them with the yoke and the burden of the law to say it would be a dark time would be an understatement. Here's how Isaiah 8-2 puts it, and we will close with this as we prepare for Advent ourselves. Here's how Isaiah 8 describes the immediate context before the birth of Christ. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And that light would come when the Son of Righteousness rose through the birth of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's the context of Advent. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you that that light, that sun has risen in the person of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we... we, we we thank you and praise you that you have not left us in that kind of spiritual bondage and darkness. We thank you, Lord, for sending us the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the righteous requirements of the law to redeem us who were born under the law. Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem a people born under the righteous requirements and burden of the law. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Son of Righteousness who rose with healing in his wings. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. In his matchless name we pray. Amen.